Good morning. You're listening to Cam FM on ninety-seven point two FM, and this is the Actual Rock Show, the only show on air dedicated solely to geological fun, fails, and flights of fancy. I'm Peter Methley, he or him, a Part Three student in the Cambridge Department of Earth Sciences. If you've listened to previous episodes of the Actual Rock Show, you might notice that something is a bit different from about this week. I'm not your usual host. In fact, you might remember me as the previous guest if you were particularly paying attention. So, what has happened to Hero? Well, to end the series, we're doing a role reversal episode, and this week they are in the hot seat. Would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Hello. Thank you so much for agreeing to interview me. Um, by popular demand. Right. And so I'm Hero. Um, they them, and. I'm a student of Corpus Christi College, obviously studying earth sciences, that's kind of obvious, and I hail from the charming but sadly rock-poor county of Norfolk. There's lots of mud, not very many rocks. <laughs> right, well, I mean, it, it's mud is good as well, I'm doing my project on mud, so... <laughs> I, I can't say mud does it for me, but, I mean, each to their own. Oh uh, well, <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. When did you realise you wanted to go into earth sciences? And what was it that made you go, yes, this is what I want to do? Okay, so I have always been kind of, like, drawn to rocks. Like, I've always been picking up rocks, putting them in my pocket at the beach. Everywhere we went, I'd be, like, picking up rocks. When I was about 14, we went to Yorkshire, the Yorkshire coast, and there was lots of cool, like, beds of rocks sticking out the sea, and there were lots of fossils, and I was, like, really obsessed. I was like, I want to know how these rocks formed. Why are they like this? But basically, I just didn't realise that rocks was a thing that one, and particularly I, could even study. Like, I didn't know that was a field of science. I just thought, why are people not talking about rocks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, ge geology isn't the most sort of commonly taught subject. It's in not. School, I mean, like... it was a massive oversight of me not to assume that somebody studied it, but... So yeah, I came to Cambridge um, to the Natural Sciences Tribe whilst intending to study chemistry, and I sort of picked earth science as a fourth option because I'd always been kind of curious about what it was. And so for the first time, I really remember going, wow, this is great, I could do more of this, was about halfway through the first ever field trip, which was to the Isle of Arran. And I feel like the extraordinary thing is it was cold, it was wet, it had been snowing. I had my period on the field trip, it was kind of miserable, but I was so excited and absolutely delighted to be out there doing geology. Despite all of the bad things going on, I was like, this is brilliant. I think at that point I was basically a lost cause. <laughs> rocks make everything better, don't they? <laughs> rocks make everything better. I feel like it was, it was something about how it made you feel connected to the world around you. The whole subject of earth science is very immediate and real, and that was something about fieldwork, that you're sort of feeling connected to what's around you. It doesn't feel kind of abstract, like wishy-washy physics. Don't mean to offend any physicists out there. Um, and also, I like the detective work. Like, that was what was really fun on the first field trip, is that we were doing detective work. So yeah. I think the point at which I basically the, reached the point of no return was sort of after first year exams where I was like, why am I pretending to myself I want to be a chemist? I just want to study the rocks because the rocks <laughs> are great. And I don't think I've ever looked back. <laughs> yeah, at some point you just have to face the truth that you're a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> Time to face the music. <laughs> the music being yeah. the sound of rocks clattering towards you down a slope. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> Well, so earth sciences as a whole is is quite a broad subject. So within it, what are your some of your particular interests? Okay, this is a slightly difficult one to explain. So what I'm really interested in is time. 
and the passage of time. So cyclicities in time, how things come round, and also time's arrow, so how things change in a sort of more linear or irreversible fashion through time. And I'm really interested in the interplay between the two different things. So anything in geology that relates to changes in time is very much my jam. But I guess in terms of narrowing down fields of subject, that's not particularly useful. So I thought of a list of some things that I think I'm interested in. So one thing is fluids moving through rocks. If you've got a fluid, like water that has lots of things dissolved in it, and then it moves through the rock and it can cause minerals in the rock to dissolve or new minerals to precipitate or minerals to grow. And sometimes if you get like loose sand, the water moving through it can stick the sand together and make it into a rock. I like that. And more specifically, so fluids move through rocks in lots of places, but specifically fluids move through rocks in fault zones. So a fault zone being an area around where an earthquake has broken the crust. So the earthquake's called slip on a fault. You get a whole zone of crumbled up rock that has lots of fluid running through it. So yeah, that's one thing I'm really interested in. Other sort of more general things are metamorphic rocks. So any rock that's been buried and squished and changed. And what they can tell us about how they were buried and squished and changed. <laughs> and then what they can tell us about what that means for how the earth works. Mountains, I like mountains. Anything about a mountain. I'm really there for mountain building and how mountains form and how they change over time. These are sort of more what I'm interested in learning about from a sort of perspective of research. But the other things that I kind of have pet interests in that I don't take very seriously, but I find interesting, like evolution of plants and the deep mantle and ocean circulation. I love ocean circulation. Plenty of fluids in the ocean as well. (laughs) Not very much rock, though. No, not much rock. But rocks do come from the ocean. This is also true. So. The ratio of fluid to rock in the ocean, I think, is maybe suboptimal for my purposes. But too much fluid, not enough rock. <laughs> yeah, you need a you need a bit of each of the the really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Fieldwork fun. A big part of their sciences is going out into the natural world and studying it, measuring it, drawing it, and hitting it with hammers. In short, fieldwork. However, fieldwork is rarely plain sailing, and it's full of ups, downs, and occasionally unexpected sidewayses. In this show, we like to take a look at some of these moments, starting with fieldwork fun. What is your funniest, slash most fun, slash best fieldwork moment or find? Okay, so I thought a lot about this because obviously every field trip is full of moments of fun and excitement. They kind of just occur sort of throughout, spread out. But um, what I've actually chosen is one of the days from the second field trip I ever went on, which was to the east of the Lake District. So it's in September, so it's quite wet and rainy. And it was one specific day when we were uh, mapping a place called Clouds. So First of all, this was set up very well in that it was like the first day that had nice weather. It just rained the entire rest of the week. And then we had this day and it was clear. You remember how, how it was Tell how nice it. it was to not be raining on that day. So it wasn't well, raining. one day my boots weren't completely full of water by the end of it. <laughs> exactly. So that was already a good setup. Um, we were wrapping this place called Clouds, which is a place with a limestone pavement. And it was mostly so structural mapping where you're trying to work out what structure the rocks are in. So rocks form in layers and then they get folded and faulted and moved around. And we were working out what the structure of the layers was. And that's my favourite kind of mapping. I love thinking about 3D structures in my head. So that was really great. But this is not the main reason why I've chosen this day. The main reason is because of a game that the demonstrators were playing. (laughs) 
<laughs> so a little bit of context demonstrators are, are lecturers and some phd students who come along on the field trip to basically point things out to us and tell us how to do geology so what they were doing we were wandering around the hills looking at rocks and they were also wandering around the hills looking for students to be like what do you think's going on here just to get us thinking about the right questions and if we're stuck answering our questions but obviously kind of wandering around looking for students quite a lot of it's a bit boring because you're kind of just walking around this area so they were playing a game um called student bingo so each demonstrator had two students which they had to locate and get to sign a sheet of paper um and the first to manage this one and if you didn't manage it by the end of the day i guess you lost i don't really sure of the rules because obviously we were not the ones playing it so we've soon cottoned on to what was going on and we decided to try to make it harder for them by being deliberately evasive and running slash hiding whenever we saw a demonstrator um so my working partner astrid who is now a chemist but astrid and i spent the entire day successfully avoiding demonstrators we, we were sort of sneaking down behind rocks we stayed behind rocks as much as we could and um, we thought we'd won basically by not being caught and then we got back to the minibus but instead of any of the demonstrators being annoyed that we had invaded them just Everyone seemed unfazed at our appearance. We certainly haven't signed anything, so what on earth had happened? And it, it turned out that we had been the two students who were left out of the bingo. Oh, no. The number of students didn't divide evenly into the number of demonstrators. Um, so we had so much fun thinking we'd won the game. It was kind of disappointing that we hadn't. But still, the <laughs> amount of joy that hiding and thinking that we were managing to hide brought me, I'm never going to forget that. It was great. I do agree with you. That was a, that was a very fun day. Definitely better than getting wet on the side of a hill. <laughs> Which I mean, most of that trip was getting wet on the side of a hill. Eureka! I found it out. The fundamental cornerstone of all sciences is testing hypotheses by collecting and analysing data. To reflect this, a large part of our course this year is a research project, where we each get to do our own original research. What I want to know about is all about your project. So before we jump in, can you give me a one-line description of your project, as if you were explaining it to a child? Okay, so... A big blob of hot, molten rock made some cold rocks next to it hotter. But in how many steps did it do it? And was it even that important anyway? <laughs> wow. Was it important? Well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll find out. You'll find out what that means. <laughs> By the way, you can, you can have a look at our Facebook page for accompanying photos if you just search for the actual rock show. Um, right, so expanding on this a bit, uh, what is the question that you're trying to answer? Okay, so I'm going to take a couple of steps back and give you a little bit of background about the Earth before I try to explain what this question is. So most, I imagine most of our listeners would have heard of different modes of heat transfer being convection, conduction and radiation. So these are the three classical modes of heat transfer. Convection is where you know, hot water rises, cold water sinks. Conduction is where sort of heat sort of moves through a material gradually. And radiation is to do with light and stuff. However, what we're going to, I'm going to tell you now is that there's a secret extra way of heat transfer. Now, it's not really an extra way because it's kind of just a combination of conduction and something else, but it sort of is. This is called advection. So you can imagine advection. Say I have an oven with a bowling ball in it. And so it's a very hot bowling ball in the oven. So the oven's hot. And then on the other side of the room, there's a bathtub full of cold water. 
Now, what I do is I take the bowling ball out of the oven, the hot bowling ball, I move it into the bathtub and I put it in the bathtub. And then the bathtub heats up because the heat conducts from the bowling ball into the water. So it's not just conduction because it's not like heat is conducted from the hot oven to the cold bathtub. You're moving you're moving heat by physically moving the hot thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm moving a hot object, which then transfers heat, and then that can conducts away. So that is what advection is. Turns out advection is also a process that goes on inside the Earth. Okay, now if you think about the crust, the, at the top of the crust, it's cold. It's like the surface temperature, sort of like 20 degrees Celsius. And at the bottom, it's like 1,300 degrees Celsius, which is the temperature of the mantle. So between those two points, heat is going to be transferred from the hot place at the bottom to the cold place at the top. So the question is, how does this heat transfer happen? So radiation is not very useful because, as we know, light can't travel through rocks. So we don't need to worry about that. We know it's not convection because the crust is very hard and cold. Well, not cold, but it's too cold for convection to happen. So the question is, is it transferred by conduction or by advection? And the answer is both, basically. So some of it is conducted from the top bo- hot bottom to the cold top, just sort of gradually. And some of it is advected in the form of magma. So the the mantle melts, makes this hot blob of molten rock, which is your magma, and then that rises through the crust. Obviously it's hot, just like a hot boiling ball, so it moves the heat, and then when it when it stops, so sometimes you might think of magma, it comes out in a volcano, obviously, but sometimes it doesn't actually come out the ground, it gets stuck inside the crust which is called emplaced. So your magma gets emplaced inside the crust and then it conducts the heat out to the surrounding rocks and it cools down. Uh, And that is advecting heat. And the kind of rock you get here where this happens is usually something called a granite. So most people will have seen a granite, for example, on a kitchen counter. It's the kind of rock you see if you go to the Lake District or to Cornwall, lots of granite, big shiny crystals, kind of pink. Um, So you get granites and every time you see a granite, that means the heat was advected through the crust. So the quest- the big question I am trying to answer, or I'm working towards giving information to help answer, is how important are the two things, conduction versus advection in the form of big things of granite? Okay, obviously that's the big question. I'm not going to actually answer it. So the smaller question is more specific. I'm looking at a specific granite. So in the Lake District, people might have heard of Skidor. It's quite a big hill. Some people call it a mountain. Um, And Skidor has a granite underneath it called the Skidor granite. Very imaginative. Makes sense. Um, So that's granite. It's now very cold. It's at the surface. We can see it. Originally, it was buried when it was emplaced. And then it cooled down and the ground was eroded. So it came towards the surface. So what I'm trying to answer is how was this particular granite emplaced? So did it all go in one big go? So was it one mass? It's quite a big granite. Did it all go as one massive bit of magma? Was it like various bits of magma that sort of built it up gradually? Um, So that's the kind of thing I'm trying to answer. And then that'll let me know how much heat it transferred through the crust and therefore how important it was, basically. So you're you're trying to look at the the rate of advection. Yes. Uh, by by seeing how like how long it takes to emplace a granite like that, then essentially, right? Well, well, that's a that's an interesting question. So, what what are you doing to answer it then? How are you working out um what's happened to this granite? So to start with, so obviously, as I said, as the granite cools by conduction, the heat the heat conducts into the surrounding rocks, which heats them up. Um, as you sort of, if you imagine it, you think the rocks nearer to the granite get hotter than the ones further away. That kind of makes sense, right? 
Um, and the exact shape of the profile, distance from the granite versus temperature, depends on how the granite was in place. So was it in one go or lots of different goes? Okay, so what I want to work out is what shape was that temperature versus distance curve? Because then that can tell me what I want to know. So how do we how do we know what temperature it was? Well, luckily, rocks are excellent thermometers, if only you know how to read them. So what I'm doing is I'm reading the rocks as thermometers. So in order to understand how this works, we start off with the fact that if you think about a rock, it's made up of a mixture of elements. So things like um, silicon and oxygen and magnesium and aluminium. And so you think it's just a mixture of lots of different elements. And these elements are arranged into different minerals within the rock. And these minerals grow as crystals. So if you look at, for example, a granite, you can see it's made up of different colored crystals, which are different minerals, and they're all stuck together. So one certain mixture of elements could be, could make lots of different combinations and ratios of different minerals. So if you know what elements there are in a rock, you don't necessarily know what minerals it's going to make. So how, how do they, the elements know what minerals to become? Something's missing here. And what it's missing is the fact that the minerals which you get in a rock depends not only on its mixture of elements, but also the pressure and temperature at which the rock formed. So at different pressures and temperatures, you'll get different minerals just from the same mixture of elements. So this means that if we know what the mixture of elements in the rock is, and we know what minerals it has in it, we can work out what temperature and pressure it formed at, because sort of just exactly going backwards. Um, so that's, that's one way I'm using it as a thermometer. There's another way you can use rocks as thermometers, um, which is by looking at how certain elements are shared between different minerals. So, for example, I'm looking at titanium in a mineral called biotite. So at low temperature, say like 400 degrees, which is, sounds hot, but it's quite low for a rock. 400 degrees, biotite doesn't really care about titanium. It doesn't really want the titanium, it doesn't really hate the titanium, it just doesn't really care. But if you heat the rock up more and more, the biotite begins to want titanium. And the hotter it gets, the more it sort of just grabs the titanium in. It's like, I want all the titanium. So, so if a larger percentage of the titanium in the rock is inside the biotite, you know the rock was hotter. It reached a higher temperature. So those are the two ways that I can use my rocks as, as thermometers. So what I did is I went to the Lake District and I collected rocks at various distances from the granite. And I'm going to work out what temperatures they're at. So start off, I had a look at them, uh, the minerals they contain. So what you do is you make 30 micrometer slices of these rocks, which are called thin sections. I personally didn't do this. Sadly, it's very cool. My supervisor did. So you can shine light through them and you can have a look at them under the microscope. And then you can use that to identify the minerals. Each mineral looks quite characteristic under the microscope. And I can also look, look at the textures or relationships between the minerals. Sometimes you can see reactions between minerals. Um, so as which mixture of minerals is stable changes, the minerals react with one another to reflect that. And sometimes you can see them frozen halfway through happening, which is very cool so, to see. That tells you that you're on the border between the, yeah. the area in which one mineral was stable and, and another mm -hmm. mineral. So how so that that's looking at the mineral assemblages, but but how are you how are you looking at these these elemental compositions? I imagine you can't just look at look down a microscope and see that. No, at this point I have to move away from sort of looking down microscopes and use some fancy machines. Woo! We love fancy machines. So um, we I use something called a scanning electron microscope. There's a program called ChemScan, which is my favourite name for a program, which you run on the scanning electron microscope and it scans bits of your thin sections and it tells you 
what different minerals are where. So it gave you some super cool looking uh, maps, which I'll, there'll be some on Facebook, so have a look. These, these false colour images of where the different minerals are in my rocks, which is really cool. And it tells me things like the percentage. So what this gives me, importantly, is the percentage of minerals in the rock. So it tells me how much of each mineral there is. So now in order to work out what elements there are in the rock, I now need to work out what elements there are in each mineral. So in order to do this, I'm, I haven't done this yet because I was going to do this on the 11th and 12th, but I've been told I can't come back to Cambridge anymore. So we'll see what happens with this. Um, but using something called an electron microprobe, and this tells me what the composition is at each point. So I can choose points inside each mineral and it'll tell me what mixture of elements is it in each mineral. And then I can combine the mixture of elements in each mineral with the percentage of each mineral in the rock. And that'll tell me the overall mixture of elements in my rock. And you can tell how much titanium the biotites are greedily taking Exactly. Up. It'll tell me how much titanium there is in the biotite. Okay, so at this point, now I have the two important bits of information, which are which minerals are in each rock and what the mixture of elements in each rock is. I come to some fancy trickery, which is using a program called Terriac Domino, which I think sounds like a Greek game of knocking things over. Um, <laughs> but it's yeah, not. Yeah, or some sort of dinosaur. It or... does. It sounds. I think it sounds really cool. I think it's less cool than it sounds. I mean, I think it's very cool, but I do think it sounds cooler than it is. So this is a program that I run on my computer. And what it has is it has this massive data set, which so Earth scientists have measured things about the reactions between certain minerals. They've measured what temperature and pressure they occur at. And so this program has a database of every single reaction that we've ever measured. And then what it does is it, it uses the information of all these reactions that we've measured, and it uses the composition I put in, in order to work out which minerals would be present at which ranges of pressure and temperature. So I get a little, di little, little there'll be some of these on the um, Facebook that you can have a look at, which have a little diagram of pressure versus temperature, and they give me little areas of which minerals are present in which areas. So you're working out where the lines are on those, those diagrams you were, were talking about, essentially. Yeah, so where the line is when one mineral turns into another, or where two minerals combine to make a third mineral, or things like that. It just makes me a little map. And then I can use that to work out the temperatures of my rocks, and I can use that to work out what was going on um, with my granite. Hmm. Well, that, that all sounds very exciting. <laughs> However, we both know that research isn't always glamorous. It's not constant eureka moments, but it's more of a gradual chipping away at a rock face. So practically, what are you doing mostly from day to day? Okay, so, so far, I mean, a lot of it has been staring at rocks very hard under a microscope like for hours on end. I mean, it hurts your eyes after a little bit. You have to sort of look up, try to stare into the middle distance and then come back into the room. But there's a lot of looking at rocks, sort of searching them minutely for, because some of the minerals I'm looking for are really, really tiny. So I was talking about silimonite. I didn't think I had any silimonite in my rocks, after, in, even until I'd looked at them for sort of like, like tens of hours, at which point I found Gosh. some. And it's like, it's so small, even under the microscope, it looks like teeny little flecks, but you, it's there. So there's a lot of sort of that kind of thing. That was a lot of my time. There's a lot of perseverance required. If a you, lot of you, perseverance, indeed. You think there's indeed. something there, but you haven't seen it yet. So. And the other thing that so far I've been doing quite a lot of is um, just running the same computer program over and over again. So it takes about 20 minutes um, to do so to do what I've been doing, which is actually a sort of rough version of what I'll do in the end, which will probably take my computer hours. As I said, it's a lot of data that it's working with. It takes a long time. So I've been putting in just slight, lots of slightly different compositions again and again and again to see how that affects what the map that I get looks like. That's been 
I mean, it's interesting to see what it comes out like, but sort of waiting for twenty minutes is a bit dull. Um, oh well, well, I'm I'm glad you're you're getting somewhere anyway. Fingers crossed, we can actually get back into the lab and <laughs> yes. finish our measurements. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Geological Groove of the Week. We're almost halfway through the show, so it's time for the Geological Groove of the Week. In this section, we get our guests to share a song or a piece of music which reminds them, in some way, of Earth sciences. So, Hero, I've been looking forward to this. (laughs) What is your Geological Groove, and why have you chosen it? Okay, this is really hard. I have so many options. So I think a big part of geological field trips is the opportunity for sharing music. So whether that's sort of played through a speaker whilst writing up notes from a field day or through a shared earphone on a coach, I have acquired a lot of new music this way. So, for example, Kian, who we heard from a couple of episode four, maybe, introduced me to the House Martins on one particularly long coach ride to see some dinosaur footprints on the Isle of Skye. Laura introduced me to the regrets while I was cooking dinner one evening or mapping, music I love. Um, but what I've picked is actually something that you introduced me to, Peter. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> kind of indirectly, but you'll see what I mean. So, set the scene. Every morning, we would drive 20 minutes to our mapping areas, and we would listen to Peter's playlist. It was a very varied and actually excellent playlist, I would say. And it contained, importantly, a number of Mika songs. So these are all oh, songs yes. <laughs> that I've heard, like Lollipop and We Are Golden. They're quite famous songs, but I had never realised they were all by the same musician. And we were talking about it, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. So I wrote this down. I have a little um, list of like songs to listen to. So I wrote Mika on my phone, on the little list. And so when we got home from mapping, I went back to listen to the rest of Mika's music. And I think it very much became the defining music of my mapping project. So I had a little playlist that had five Mika songs on it. And in the last week before my mapping project hand in, I would I would listen to it on repeat all the time while I was working. So I sort of come into the library at about 11am, work until 6, and then come back at 9 and work until 1am, just every day in a cycle. And I just listen to the music over and over again. Okay, so the song I've chosen from this playlist is a song called Live Your Life. And I, I chose this one because, honestly, I love it. it. It makes me laugh, it makes me cry, it makes me dance, I don't know, just... And I think it also captures how lucky I felt to have done something so exciting as a mapping project. Because, I mean, yes, I did want to live my life at that moment. And why wouldn't everyone else want to as well? It was awesome. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah. I have you to thank for this music that I'm, has meant a lot to me. I'm honoured. Well, <laughs> let's... Okay, so this is Live Your Life by Mika. You got the whole world in your pocket, but you just don't know. Everybody's smiling. Welcome back to the actual rock show on Cam FM. That was Live Your Life by Mika. Right, okay, so now it's time for a few of my favourite things, or a few of Hero's favourite things, to be precise. My favourite things. (laughs) 
Earth scientists are famous for having rock collections and ask each other such questions as what is your favourite rock? And so adhering rigidly to that stereotype, in this section I ask our guests for some of their geolog geological favourites. Starting with, what is your favourite rock? Okay, so this is a very specific rock, um, which is the black bio sparite from my mapping area. Okay, so <laughs> it's got a long name because it's and funny. three O's in a row. <laughs> three O's in a row. This is not the reason I've chosen it. I would like to clarify. I love the fact that it has three O's in a row, but that's not the reason. Um, actually, when I wrote it, I put brackets inside it. Um, so it's a limestone which can which contains lots and lots and lots of fossils also has okay this is the, the real reason i've chosen it is i talked earlier about how much i like fluids moving through rocks by faults this is where my love of fluids moving through rocks by faults comes from which is in this rock there is a combination so there's a combination of silica which is like opal or quartz but it wasn't like it's was more like opal in this case a dolomite which is a fancy type of limestone and hematite, which is this red ore of iron. And it had these three things sort of appearing in a combination, in association. And they were telling a really interesting story about how the fluids moved through the rocks and how they deposited these three minerals. Because these three minerals were not original. They were sort of added into the rock later when the fluids moved through the rocks after the fault. And it was so cool. And some of the textures that the silica made was insane. Okay, I'm just going to walk you through some of them because they were amazing. So there was one place where there was just these spheres. These spheres of silica inside the rock. They were little tiny, they're like sort of like half a centimetre across. Um, and the, my favourite by far, though, is a combination of silica and a fossil. Which was, so these are, these are shells, like a seashell that you might have found at the beach. And they're a bit like oysters, but they're not really. They're called Grophea, um, which is also known as devil's toenail. Because if you imagine the toenail that you think the devil might have, it basically looks like that. <laughs> and there were a lot of them um, around. It was clearly the environment where a lot of them lived. But they had been replaced by silica. So they were sparkly and white and they had been replaced. So not only had they just been replaced, that would have been cool enough to begin with, but they were replaced in a very specific way. So they started out at certain points and then they it grew out in rings around these points. So it had a texture on it, which was like lots of concentric circles that were growing out from points and then touching each other and sort of overlapping. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And there will be a picture of this. Honestly, I cannot express how amazing this was. It was... Everything about this rock is amazing, basically. <laughs> I was very, very jealous of your bio-spirite. We had the same unit in our mapping area, but it wasn't nearly as exciting as, as you No, it, so. no, so it was but... I, I, it was deposited in, like, a sea of variable depth, and it was quite different in different places. And it was just... We just happened to have the, the optimal part of it <laughs> <laughs> yes but i did get to see your cool fossils though so that was yes that was nice yeah well on on that subject uh what's your favorite fossil hero okay so this is going to be kind of ironic because we've moved from a rock which is basically just fossils to a fossil which is in many ways a whole rock um <laughs> my favorite fossil is the rhiny chert okay so Ooh, yeah exciting. so the, the rhiny chert is a very special rock um, it's silica again because I basically just love silica, um, and it forms. So it's it's very old. Is it Ordovician? I think I'm. 
Devonian. Devonian is Devonian. Okay. I have to check that. <laughs> so Devonian, uh, it's about three hundred million years ago, ish, and it what it is is it traps a lot of very early land plants in it. So it's sort of, this silica has filled in the cells inside these early land plants and it's preserved them perfectly. You can see the cell walls, you can see the the structures of these plants in incredible detail. And you sort of pick it up and it's got all these, you could see all the stems going through the rock and you can see the, it's just really densely packed in all these plants, all these different plants. And it's beautiful and incredible. It's also really unusual, so it formed sort of in a... People might have heard of Yellowstone Park, which is obviously a volcanic... Lots of volcanic springs around there. And they you might see, for example, like terraces where there has been deposited silica and calcite and things. So you see sort of the drips, like a bit like a stalactite or something. Well, this was also a bit like that. It's a volcanic spring um, which had all these plants living in it. And then it had so much silica dissolved in the water that it, it sort of filled in and it replaced these cells. So it's really unusual, and it's really beautiful. And and it, these are the some of the the very first land plants that we've actually seen like actual fossils of as well. So it's amazing that they've got such a well-preserved example from back then. It is, because in most places, these plants are really small, they're quite insubstantial, and most places they just get destroyed, they don't get preserved. And we're really lucky that we have an example where they're being preserved. So the reason why they hold a special place in my heart is, so when I was in first year, we came into a practical and there was some slices of the Rhiney Chirp. And we had to have a look at it and think about like how it was constructed and how it compared to a modern plant. Now, anyone who knows things about plants, it's got cells, but they're different sizes in different parts of the plant. So around the edge of the plant, you've got quite small cells in order to make the plant nice and rigid at the edges so it won't snap when it bends in the wind. And then in the middle, it's got spongy cells. However... When we looked at the Rhiney chirp plants, they were the other way around. They had all the little cells in the middle and their big cells around the edge. And I found this hilarious. I thought it was hilarious that these very first plants were completely counterintuitive. They had their cells completely the wrong way around. And after that point, it's just held this special place in my heart. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's let's move on to your favourite mineral. Okay, this has got a much less deep story to it. Um, my favourite mineral is epidote. It's a mineral. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yes. It's it's. If people might know it because it is a precious stone. So when you get nice pieces, people put it in rings and stuff. Um, my reason I like it is because it's the colour of pistachios, or as our lecturer very charmingly could put it, the colour of snot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say pistachio. <laughs> I wasn't going to say pistachio. I'd forgotten that she said pistachio. Um, <laughs> But I like pistachios. I like epidote. I do have quite a lot of rocks that have epidote in them because when I see them, I sort of collect them instinctively. I grab them. I'm <laughs> like, I want them. Um, it's very pretty, and in it's in thin section, it's got party colours, hasn't it? It does. So when you yes, when you make a thin section of it, um, when you we've talked about this before, when you put in the the crossed polars, you get party colours. It's Kermit the Frog green and Miss Piggy <laughs> pink. It's really cool. Um, that's actually not the reason why I like it though. Part of it is that I saw it. So in on my very first field trip to the Isle of Arran, I saw some in some chalk. That was very cool. And it was sort of the first mineral where I knew what it meant. Like it had some kind of further meaning to me. Like some one of my supervisors told me that it meant fluid alteration at mid-crustal levels. And it was kind of the mineral that introduced me to the whole concept of interpreting rocks and making rocks mean something based on what their minerals and textures say. 
So it kind of holds significance there for me as well. Um, okay, so what's your favourite layer of the Earth? Crust. I, hands down, the crust is my favourite layer of the Earth. Um, it's the bit we actually know about, and it's the bit that we can go and look at, and we can use it to tell us things. We can use structures inside it to infer things about dynamics of other layers of the Earth. It tells us about all the other layers of the Earth. Everything we see and do is filtered by what we see on the crust, and impacted by what we see on the crust and that is our primary tool for knowing anything about the earth is a crust even you know even when you're looking at the deep earth by using looking at earthquakes there are earthquakes that are occurring in the crust our knowledge is filtered by where earthquakes happen in the crust everything comes back to the crust so yeah i really can't choose another layer yeah it's probably where the most interesting things are happening as well isn't it it's got such a complex structure and varied yeah yeah and it's possible, you know, it's possible the mantle is equally complex and varied, but we just can't see at that resolution. Yeah, yeah. it's nice to actually be able to see what you're what you're investigating. Yeah, um, I'm, and yeah. again, I'm I'm going to go on about this a bit, but I'm really into the whole sort of feeling connected to the world, and the crust is there; it's immediate. You yeah, feel I think like if you're, you're if you're connected to the world via the mantle, then you you're. <laughs> You've got a bit of a problem. <laughs> You've fallen yeah. down a seduction zone or something. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> Let's not do that. Right. Well, okay. What is your favourite geological period? I am really going to go against the common consensus. Everyone goes for something that's old. But my favourite geological period is the tertiary. This is the period just before the one we're in now, which is the Quaternary. It runs from 66 million years, which is the mass extinction that killed the dinosaurs, up to not that long ago. Um, (laughs) I say not that long ago, it's a couple of million years. And I just, all my favourite things seem to have happened in the Tertiary. It's recent enough for interesting climate records. We can look at things like ocean circulation in the Tertiary. Um, there was a cool thing called the this is again more climate stuff there was something called the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum basically where it was nice and hot for a bit and this is when mammals diversified that was cool that was really cool um, in our mapping area there were some very cool tertiary rocks there were the fossils of some ancestors of sea cows um, that was cool the Cyrenians um, a lot of our rocks were tertiary rocks and they were excellent rocks um, in the tertiary the Alps and the Himalayas formed I love mountains I love the Alps particularly I also have a very soft spot for the Himalaya so that's good and also the Mycenaean salinity crisis I am so keen on the Mycenaean salinity crisis so this is when the um, so if you think about the Straits of Gibraltar there's like a really small narrow channel where all the water from the Mediterranean goes in and out to the Atlantic now um, during the Mycenaean salinity crisis, the Straits of Gibraltar was higher. Basically, it sort of separated the Atlantic from the Mediterranean. So the Mediterranean became isolated. And it evaporated. <laughs> the Mediterranean just evaporated. And it produced lots of salt. So underneath the Mediterranean, and actually a lot of the sort of edges of the Mediterranean, so lots of Italy and Spain, there's just loads of salt under the ground. In fact, it didn't even happen once, though. This is even better. It happened again and again and again. The water kept on coming in from the Atlantic, filling it up, getting cut off, evaporating. Coming in from the Atlantic, filling it up, getting cut off, evaporating. So just this cycle of getting cut off and evaporating and filling up again. And I love it. I'm really interested in the underlying causes of it, which are probably something to do with how the mantle was moving down underneath the Strait of Gibraltar. It's amazing. I love it. Right, so what's your favourite non-Earth planet? Uh, I've gone for Venus. 
And this is precisely because it's mysterious. Um, <laughs> so in the in the nineties, there was a um, mission to take photos of the surface of Venus and to measure its gravity and its topography. So we have some good gravity and topography data for Venus. And what we discovered is that Venus has some very big topography. Like compared to the Earth, the topography on Venus is really tall and it's really wide. So the mountains on Venus are very large. And looking at its gravity, we can work out that this topography is supported by convection in the mantle. So convection in the mantle of Venus. So the question is how and why? Because why is this convection so on such a long length scale? like compared to what we think is going on on the Earth. And how is the crust supporting such large topography? Because on Earth, if we had topography that big, it would break, it would fault. So is it is it because the Venus crust is made of something different? Is it dry? What's going on there? And it's always unanswered questions we have. And then thinking about what that can tell us about the Earth. Also, lots of other cool things on Venus. There's a place called Aphrodite, which is this mysterious ring. What is this mysterious ring? Is it to do with the Earth breaking because it's uplifted? Is it pulling apart? Is it being squished together and starting to subduct? What's going on? There's all sorts of things we can see on the surface of Venus that are just so mysterious and exciting. Okay, well, Venus is a is a is a great choice then, and plenty of rocks there too. Um, yes. Right. So that's it for Hero's favorite things, and now. Fieldwork fails. So early in the show we heard about Hero's moment of fieldwork fun, but fieldwork has its upsy-daisies as well as its hoorays. And in this section, we hear about something which might not have gone so well. So, Hero, what is your biggest or funniest fieldwork fail? Okay, this was quite a difficult one to strike the tone with, so... I, I toyed a little bit with talking about some genuine moments of failure, like crying in lobbies of strange hotels, hiding behind curtains, panically walking the streets of Greece. But while accessibility in earth sciences fieldwork is an interesting topic, I'm not sure this is the right context for that discussion. So, um, Also, another story I thought of was when I once had to take a poo in the field, but that seemed a little bit crude. <laughs> oh, um, so instead, I have settled on a more conventional fieldwork failure. It's a series of practical failures that constituted my part two mapping project. Um, this is more of a list than a moment. A lot of things went wrong, and most of them were my fault. Um, so there were some sort of some more run of the mill failures, you know, climbing up a big hill and almost getting stuck at the top of it. Uh, one time I pulled a rock on my head and almost died. Uh, luckily, Kian was there to catch the rock, so I didn't. Uh, another time we ran away up a hill, away from a barking dog, whilst we were simultaneously running away from a thunderstorm. That was thrilling. Uh, my adrenaline has never been so high. Uh, there was another time when I spent an hour walking deeper and deeper into spiky head height undergrowth until it got completely impassable and we had to spend an hour getting back out of it. And also a time when I was once electrocuted on a leg whilst I climbed over an electric cattle fence, which was, again, not so pleasant. Um... No, they, they, they do like their electric fences in France and their dogs and their unkept shrubbery. Yes, they do. Well, I think they have cattle. They don't want the cattle wandering onto the road. Um, but still, don't be electrocuted on the leg. It's very unpleasant. And then there's some slightly more niche and technical failures, which I think are actually even worse failures than those, because those are kind of inevitable when you're doing field work. And these are just things that I should have foreseen. Um, and <laughs> the one I'm going to go for is grid lines. So oh, yeah. <laughs> when 
you map, what you have is you have a printed out map of the topography and the roads, which you then, you work out where you are using usually GPS, and then you find that place on your map, you mark on where you are, you measure the rocks, you identify the rocks, and you mark on what orientation the rocks are in and what kind of rock it is. That's the basics of how you map. Um, However, as you can probably imagine, integral to this being possible is having grid lines in order to work out. So once you've got your GPS location, you then have to use the grid lines to work out whereabouts you are. So obviously grid lines are entirely essential to this. I was in charge of printing out these maps onto which we would add our geology. And I printed them out without checking what the lines that it had on it were. It produced lines. I printed them off this online portal. It gave me lines. I printed it out merrily, not worrying about it. They weren't grid lines. I don't know what they were. They were like (laughs) 7.5 degree seconds or something. They were... I I remember wandering around the the car park at the casino supermarket with the GPS out, trying to like correlate the exact position on the map and figure out what the grid lines were. It was useless. Um, <laughs> honestly, this was a massive failure on my part. I did not. I should have realised. Luckily, Peter had you, you bought a paper copy of the map that we were using. Um, so thankfully, we could copy the grid lines, but we did have to copy the grid lines like manually locate the points on the map and then locate them on our map and then put the dots and then draw the that i'm never repeating that um yeah <laughs> that map was 12 euros well spent uh, yeah it was a bit of a pain to actually have to <laughs> i am very sorry <laughs> and, for like, this. if you messed up the lines then you had to start again on a new field slip and it was but in the end, we got accurate enough locations. So. It was fine. It was fine. So with that being said, we're going to move on to Fieldwork Flights of Fancy. Fieldwork Flights of Fancy. So, Hero, if you could carry out geological fieldwork anywhere in the universe... Where would you go and why? Okay, so I'm going to be incredibly impractical and very ignorant of the laws of physics. And I'm going to say somewhere in the mantle. Um, Anywhere in the mantle would do. I want to go in the mantle. I think probably I'd go for the core mantle boundary. So there's this thing called LLSVPs, Large Low Shear Velocity Provinces, which are mysterious mountains on the boundary. I just want to know what they are, you know? I want to do some geological fieldwork. I want to pick them up, see what their composition is, see how it changes. Is it a gradual change or a sharp change, you know? Uh, the other option is I might go to the um, the base of the lithosphere. So the lithosphere is the t- cool top bit of the mantle in areas like cratonic regions, which are regions with really thick lithosphere, and see what's going on there. And also go specifically to places, so sometimes the um, thick lithosphere under a craton falls off i'd go to some of those places mm. i'd go to kimberley where the diamonds come from go underneath the ground in kimberley go into the mantle i want to swim through the mantle you know i want to reenact the core when they move through the yes. mantle in their ship <laughs> so would, would you want to go inside a protective ship or somehow have some mechanism that ele- enables you to just sort of walk around through solid rock this is magic i just want to be able to walk around through solid rock <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess it would be useful to, to just be able to hit the mantle with a hammer and pick up a bit of it. It would like, be. It would be great. I'm... yeah. Who knows where LLSVPs... Well, we know where they are, but what are they made of? Are they just hot? Are they made of something different from the rest of the mantle? 
Are they low density? Are they high density? Who knows? <laughs> so yeah, that'll be that would be mm. wonderful. Yeah, well, that's a that's an unconventional choice, but a, a good one. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, Hero, for coming on the show. It's been thank you for brilliant to have me. you. No worries. I'm happy to swap roles anytime. <laughs> So, a couple of points of reflection before I let you go back to your rocks or computer models or whatever. So, is this what the 11-year-old hero thought they might be doing? Uh, yes and no. So, when I was 11, my future me that we had to draw in class was um, me working as a paleontologist, although I don't think I knew that word then, um, cloning dinosaurs with my friend Louie. You were going to recreate Jurassic Park. No, no, actually no. So, I was just about to say, I have, I had not, and I still have never seen Jurassic Park. In fact, when I was 11, I had never even heard of Jurassic Park. Actually, the reason why I wanted to clone dinosaurs was completely unrelated to Jurassic Park. Um, I had read a newspaper article about cloning. And I sort of also about how chickens were related to dinosaurs. And I was like, I bet we could clone dinosaurs inside a chicken egg. Um, possibly they've mentioned that in the article. I thought it was a great idea. Um, so, you know, I did think I'd be a scientist and also studying earth sciences. But I guess I'm not studying quite the stuff that I thought I would be. Yeah, I guess like granite plutons is not not entirely related to dinosaurs. It's but... a far cry from cloning dinosaurs, but... But rocks, everything's it, to do with rocks. rocks. Really. It's all to do with rocks. Yeah. So it's kind of similar, you know? Hmm. So what do you think 11-year-old you would say if they saw you now? I think they'd be pretty impressed and I suspect excessively excited, as is my perpetual way of being. Um, I've always been... Okay, so at this point, I've touched this before. I'm going to sound like a massive fool when I say this. I don't mean it in the kind of... I don't know how I mean it. I don't mean it in the kind of way that people make fun of, but people might make fun of me. I've always felt like quite in touch with the world and nature. Like when I was 11, I was sort of all into plant medicine, which I'm not so much anymore, but like you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. I think earth sciences is something of an extension of that. I keep talking about how it's sort of very much about being connected to the world around you. Also, the other thing, I really love Famous Five books. I always wanted to go on my own adventure. I thought it'd be so cool. And I mean, yes. what was the part two mapping project, if not basically a Famous Five yeah. adventure with added science? It really was. <laughs> yes, it, it was. We went Although exciting there were four places. Of us. Yes, but we didn't have a dog. We didn't have a dog, no. But, but... that was okay. I don't really like dogs anyway. Um, <laughs> but it basically was a Famous Five adventure. I mean, I don't know how best to describe the sort of the vibe. So... Yeah, I think that would be something that 11-year-old me would be utterly delighted about. Hmm. So, what would you say to anyone out there who isn't sure whether they want to go into earth sciences? Earth sciences is a is in a very unique position as a historical science. It's a science in which we're working out the past and changes over time by looking at physical evidence of the past, which makes it pretty special, I think, and also hugely imaginative. I'd say a key defining feature of earth sciences is it's about imagining how things might have been or could be, in fact. It, you know, it opens up these whole worlds to you, which you never could have imagined. Mm -hmm. Worlds of swirling gas and dust, worlds of hot, transfiguring rocks, worlds of giant dragonflies and tall, branchless trees. Um, 
it's also interested in what we can see around us. Studying Earth sciences is maybe much more connected to the physical world we live in. And I think that's really delightful, grounding experience. It also gives you a, a constant hobby and talking point of looking at the local geology wherever you go, which <laughs> I think is improved my life. Essentially, I, I can't recommend it more. If you're interested in the world around you, and especially if you enjoy spending time outdoors and walking, then Earth sciences can bring you an understanding and connection to the world, which surpassed all my expectations. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, I think that's a very neat way to, to sum things up. I mean, Earth sciences is, well, it's just, like, our planet is so fascinating, isn't it? And, yeah. like, as you say, the Earth, even a million years ago, was completely different to what to what we know now, let alone yeah. four billion yeah. years ago. Yeah. There's so many stories out there for us to find out. Yeah, and that's what geology is, right? It's using the rocks yeah. to tell a story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right, well, that brings us to the end of not only this episode of the actual rock show, but the end of the series. Aww. It's been I'm sure it's been a good journey for you, Hero. Yeah, have it you has. In, have you enjoyed recording? I've All loved recording. Episodes. Thank you so much to everyone who's been on the show. I had this, this little dream in my head and now it's becoming a real thing and it's wonderful. Um, yes, it's been honestly brilliant. Hmm. And I've, I've enjoyed being part of it as well. Oh, I'm glad. The final time. Hero, would you like to choose some music to play us out with? Okay, this is These Boots Were Made For Walking. Uh, because if there's one thing you do in geology... It's walking! <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's definitely true. Right, so, to play us out, we have These Boots Are Made For Walking by Nancy Sinatra. Episode 7 of The Actual Rock Show starred Hero Bane. This episode of The Actual Rock Show was hosted by Peter Methley. The Actual Rock Show was devised and edited by Hero Bane. Sound effects were taken from the Zap Splat sound effects library. Visit the Actual Rock Show Facebook page for the images accompanying this episode and more information, or go to the Camera Film web player to listen again. <laughs>